The materials provided are for information only and do not constitute as an offer. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors. Neither Zach or Jack are financial advisors. The information contained in this podcast episode has been compiled with considerable care to ensure its accuracy at the date of publication. However, no representation or warranty, express or implied, is made to accuracy or completeness. We shall not be responsible for any consequential effect, nor be liable for any direct, consequential, incidental, indirect loss or damage, however caused, arising from the use of, inability to use, or reliance upon any information or materials provided on this podcast, whether or not such loss or damage is caused by us. Links to third-party sites are provided for your information only. The content and software of these sites have been issued by third parties. As such, we cannot be responsible for the accuracy of information contained in these sites, nor be held liable for any loss or damage arising from or related to their use. Investors should be cautious about any and all crypto asset and investment recommendations and should consider the source of any advice on crypto asset selection. Various factors, including personal or corporate ownership, may influence or factor into an expert's stock analysis or opinion. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual crypto assets before making a purchase decision. In addition, investors are advised that past crypto asset performance is no guarantee of future price appreciation. Do not invest money you cannot afford to lose. All investments come with a degree of risk. Hey, Jack. Hey, Zach. How's it going? Going all right. Uh, just trying to keep up with the, the fires and air quality here, considering uh, getting out of town for a little bit. Yeah. Air quality is fine over here in New York, although it's starting to get pretty cold. But weather aside, all is good. Yeah. Now is one of the few times I'd take New York over California, for what it's worth. Yeah, don't blame me. All right, so we have a great a great guest today, Zach, as always. Would you give him a proper introduction? Yeah, so I, I met Orest in my favorite, one of my most favorite possible ways at our local Russian bathhouse. And then hanging out a little bit later, realized that he was a head of research for Awesome Ventures, another uh, blockchain-focused impact investment fund. And since then, we've hung out a few times and talked crypto, and now now we're kind of making it making it official on the podcast. So, uh, Oris, w- w- welcome today. Yeah, thanks for the thanks for the introduction. Happy to be here. Yeah, so I'd love to learn just about kind of your background in crypto before Awesome, and kind of how 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 you got to where you are today. For sure, I guess to. Where it all started was Reddit uh, 10 years ago now, I guess, when I saw the Bitcoin white paper when it first came out. Um, I was pretty young at the time, like 10, 11 years old. <laughs> so didn't really capture what it was going for too much. Then uh, fast forward about four or five years, I came across uh, Genesis Mining, which was doing uh, issuing mining contracts at the time. And I got pretty interested and the idea of using uh, computer power in order to earn virtual currency. So I uh, purchased a bunch of mining contracts, sat on that for a while, and uh, I realized that the value of Bitcoin is appreciating faster than the mining contracts are paying out, uh, at which point I realized that it's more, it's more valuable to purchase Bitcoin outright. So that's what I began to do. And then uh, fast forward a couple of years, uh, Ethereum came out. Uh, I purchased quite a bit of Ethereum. I was very excited about the smart contract technology. And that led me into the ICO craze of the summer about two years ago. I want to say I flipped close to 20 to 30 different ICOs during that time. And uh, if if you guys remember, that time was crazy for ICOs. It was as if every ICO would, would 3 to 4x within two weeks. And then later on, about a year and a half ago or so, I, I stumbled across a system called the Ethereum Name Service, which was a auction for domain names that you could correlate to Ethereum addresses. And I realized the potential of this in order to really scale out Ethereum and make it much more transparent and human human uh, accessible. And so over the course of the following month, so I stumbled across the auction a little under 24 hours after it opened. And over the course of that month, I was living at home at the time. So my father, who I, I turned into a crypto enthusiast myself, we spent that whole month up all night purchasing ENS names uh, of all the major brands around the world, just uh, thinking that something might become of it at some time. And so after acquiring all these names, it's sort of like, oh, we're one of the largest squatters of ENS names in the world. Like, what do we do with this? 
And so we thought to do an Ethereum point of sale system and uh, actually built out the full infrastructure, the MVP, all the smart contracts to process Ethereum payments in under two seconds in a retail setting. So I took this uh, to a next level and started to pitch venture capital firms within Chicago to see how, how, much, how much validity was actually in the project, what type of excitement was around it. And at the time, crypto wasn't as big as it is now. And it was much more traditional venture capital in Chicago. No one was very interested. But through that process, I learned the struggles of, of being a startup and pitching to different venture capital firms. And after, after the course of developing that for a while, I actually, shortly after I finished acquiring names, I wrote an article about the Ethereum name service, which was one of the first pieces out there explaining how it works and what the functionality is. And that blew up. I got over 300,000 views on a website that is a crypto news site based out of India that really did not have any traction prior to then, which really exposed me to the, the interest that is out there for cryptocurrencies and their functionality. And fast forward from there, I had always been continuing investing in the sense of private sales, pre-sales, and various ICOs along the way. Then I was looking to do something with a larger firm because I wanted to do, I wanted to have more capital deploy, greater access. And at that point, I was at a conference at Distributed Markets in Chicago. And I met Jeremy when he was just announcing Awesome Ventures at the time. And I approached him after and asked him to join. And I was super excited about it. And then... Over the course of a few months, uh, he brought me on as his intern. And then once my internship came to an end, he, he proposed to me to drop out of uh, Northwestern, where I was going at the time, to become his head of research. And I thought it was a great opportunity, so I went after it. And in terms of like my formal background, per se, I, I was studying math and economics at Northwestern at the time. I had uh, almost completed my math major requirements since I had been excelling pretty well in math throughout all my high school and all that. So I have pretty strong technical knowledge. I don't consider myself a coder, although I used to code back when I was in, in middle school. I would launch different websites for different purposes, but always been very interested in tech and and really excited about cryptocurrencies in the recent few, in the in the recent few years. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the degree to which you are a, a coder, a developer. When you were building the payment system with Ethereum. Were you active as a developer at all on that project? On that project, I, so my Solidity background is not uh, is not up to par to what I wanted to be done. So I actually had a CTO who developed most of it. I really just audited the smart contracts to make sure everything was in check and to make sure it flowed well. Okay, awesome. I'm just curious. Interesting background. I think you are our youngest guest so far. So what do you think stood out about you that made awesome, you know, want to seek your services? I mean, I've really been sort of sort of involved in this space uh, from, I guess, advising, consulting, investing for uh, like anywhere from five to ten years, arguably. So I think they were attracted to how much time I had spent in this space as well as how much I had learned from it. Because I, I spent most of my time in, in high school and whatnot just reading white papers and and understanding how tokens work and what the technology is. So, and I think I, I proved myself to awesome through evaluating certain companies and providing interesting perspectives that most most people cannot offer. And also in the fact that I did attempt to run a startup, so I, I knew from the other perspective what these companies are dealing with and how difficult it is to legally run a startup. I think the the legal side of it was was the biggest hurdle I had to overtake. Because all the lawyers are trying to be safe and, and you need so many licenses, which is just millions of dollars in order to go into action. So it's, it's, it's definitely a rough space to start get it going. Yeah, I think we can speak to that to a certain degree, Ezra, dealing with the legal side being a big challenge. So you mentioned that it seems like you had a lot of success investing during the ICO boom, sort of with the basic investment strategy. And I'm sure there was plenty of nuance, but... The basic strategy being that these things are going to triple in value or more in the two weeks following their release, and so owning them at the time of the release is a good idea. How has your sort of evaluation process evolved over the past two years as this 
sort of model of investing, you know, came sort of to a crashing halt? Yeah, I would say I've definitely formalized my investment process. And when I first started investing, it was more of I would research projects that I thought myself I would use and thought were interesting. Then I would communicate with the founders to learn more on it, see how how legit the project is, if they're actually developing on it. And over time, as I learned more on investing and venture capital, I developed the process into really a structured evaluation process, which is really what, what Awesome has taken on to be the due diligence process that we do currently. And I think it, it really comes with just experience from seeing what happens to different ICOs and what the founders' perspectives are on that. And it's really, I, I'd say it's a personal process of how your investment thesis develops. So tell us a little bit about what this process, maybe what this process was like kind of at the end of pre-awesome days and then how once you kind of got officially onboarded there, kind of the things you've learned, what has changed and to kind of where you are and the organization is today. Yeah, of course. So I guess pre-awesome, I would invest on on certain criteria, which would which would include, I guess, uh, the founder market fit, as well as their ability to distribute. So that that entails what partnership they have, how big are their outlet channels, if their social media followings are legit or not, as well as the the activity on their GitHub. So those were my primary focuses in terms of of my investments prior to joining Awesome, and then once I joined Awesome, Jeremy Gardner sort of mentored me into his due diligence process, which is much more extensive, that covers many facets, including uh, diving into the actual technology, into the social impact of it, since we are a social impact fund, as well as the risk associated with it and the partnerships they have. And it's really like it's it's more of a process of discussing with other firms and and taking in many different perspectives to get a comprehensive view. I definitely still look at the same criteria I used to in terms of the social media, the founders, the the GitHub pages and all that, but it's definitely formalized much so. We currently publicize actually some of our reports via Medium, which which covers the complete process from start to end. Currently, our due diligence process stems from I initially look I look at every project that we see, and that usually ends up being several hundred a month. So what I what I do with this is that I do a a preliminary analysis just to determine oh is this is this worth worth investigating further how interesting is it and then following that I have a call with the founders to to find out what they're like and to find out how what relationships they have have they run a startup before how comfortable they are managing a team and all all the traditional venture capital facets of things and then once that is complete. That's when uh, we discussed with our team, oh, like, what do we, what do we think is going to happen with this? Do we think it's something worth pursuing? And at that point is when, is when I do a more extensive analysis, which we call a deep dive. And the, the deep dive has the value proposition, the problem solution, the market and competition, the product and technology, the team, the social impact and the risk. Uh, that's really a comprehensive overview of it. Um, cool. Yeah, a lot, lot of similarities, Jack. As I'm sure you're hearing between how we approach things. Just out of out of curiosity, is there? Do you have an investment committee, or like how how do you decide to actually pull the trigger on something? Uh, yeah, so it varies. Uh, we do have an investment committee that we like to to really have go through all of our potential investments prior to actually writing a check. And our investment committee includes uh, myself, our our two co-founders, as well as a couple of advisors we have to the fund as well. So before we dive into tokenomics type things, I'm curious, since I don't think we've talked to anyone who's investing from primarily a social impact lens uh, to this point, how much is you know your view of the social impact of a project independent of how good of an investment you see it as from like a purely from a bottom line standpoint? You know, how are you weighing those two things? How independent are they in the way you're approaching these projects? Social impact is our is our number one thing, but at the same time, we are a VC with LPs, so we have to produce good returns. And in order to do that, we we look at the companies in a 
in a different way, I'd say, like a traditional social impact, everyone sort of has their own definition of it. So our definition of it is, is a technology that profoundly impacts 10 million people or more at scale. So we look at companies that will do a wide effect and that will do something valuable in terms of like, let's say, like supply chain, where it's, it's making sure that the product you're purchasing at the store is actually what you believe it to be. Okay, you're looking for projects that have a large breadth of positive impact. So not necessarily trying to directly tackle the world's you know biggest problems, but just making sure that you're looking at things that aren't too niche, that are going to improve human welfare you know, for a large segment of the population. Yeah, exactly. That's it. And I mean, we invest along the lines of our fund thesis. Our, three, our thesis has three core pillars, which are foundational technology, empowerment, and realignment. So foundational technology, that's stuff at the protocol layer things, things like Bitcoin and Ethereum that have created these large platforms for people to build new things on top of. And then in terms of empowerment, that's like financial inclusion with projects like DALA, which which create a, a financial infrastructure for, com- for countries that are underbanked, that do not have uh, a stable currency. And then digital identity, things like Civic, Uport, that create an identity for people to use in areas that it wasn't possible before. It's like projects I've seen like this are IXO Protocol, which was actually working with the, the Syrian refugee crisis to create identities for those individuals. And then that, that also includes privacy coins um, in terms of realignment. That's it's cha- changing how current things are run. That, that includes supply chain, like I just said, energy, which in terms of like creating microgrids or a new solar infrastructure in terms of transacting renewable energy from home to home instead of from a central power grid, as well as civic, which, which is really in terms of different governance models and how we don't need central entities. That's a, I mean, that's like the, the beauty of decentralization is that we don't need a core group of people to decide everything. We can collectively come to a consensus, which is, I, I find that very interesting. And it's, it's a political science challenge in a way of, of testing out different voting mechanisms and seeing what works for different people. These investments, for obvious reasons, you know, beyond just the impact of it, you know, if you if you have a long term approach, then what is most important is how these things are going to function at scale, and I think that's where tokenomics often comes into place. To what degree? Well, I guess let's start. This is something that we want to maybe start asking all of our guests. What does tokenomics mean to you? So tokenomics to me is the. I mean, the whole idea of what happens with the token, how does it flow within the ecosystem? How do users adopt the token? How do they acquire the token? What, how do they use the token? What fees are, are there? How is the token expand or con- token supply expand or contract with time? It's really all the core numbers around how the token will function. And I, I mean, I'm curious to see how you guys define tokenomics as well. Well, I guess we'll have to link to the recent Medium article that I'm sure will have been posted by this time, talking about yeah. some aspects of you know, what tokenomics is. But yeah, I think <laughs> the easiest way to break it down is, you know, it's economics where your economy uses a token. And a token, I guess, is in some ways a medium of exchange that can be programmed in various ways. It's a broader subject than that, and the article discusses that. Uh, but I, th- I think both of these definitions have a lot of merit. And what they're trying to get at, or what, what's the important sort of ramification of, you know, tokenomic structure is, are these economies able to function at scale? And does the economy functioning at scale mean that the token will be valuable? If that's the goal, which it often is, you know, when these tokens are being sold to raise money from investors who are seeking returns to various degrees. So I think, you know, that's what tokenomics is and that's the goal. And so what are the sorts of things that you're looking for in projects from a tokenomics perspective? Uh, What are the sorts of designs you feel will be successful at scale? The primary reason why I pass on most projects 
is because I believe that their token is causing too much friction within the ecosystem. So if you look at like let's let's say look at a platform like Augur, where to use the platform, you don't need to hold any reputation tokens. That's that there's no friction at all with that. And I think that's that's the the main hurdle. If people have to go onto an exchange and acquire tokens in order to use a platform, that's already many points of friction that they have to overcome. So like first off, they need to create a Coinbase account to acquire some crypto, and then they need to create an exchange account to transfer the crypto to and acquire the tokens. Then they need to transfer the tokens into the platform wallet or whatever, their their MetaMask or whatnot. So that's already three points where that does not need to happen. So I would say that's the primary thing I look for. And then besides that, it's as well as the inflation and deflation and the how the tokens will be distributed if like a project gives up all their tokens at ico then that's an issue of where they won't have more tokens to to do if anything changes in the future as well as um if you look at different projects that that have some absurd amount going to the team that's that's immediately a red flag that that they're overcompensating themselves or trying to sell out at the ico so I would say it really varies per the project how the tokenomics really function. I, I still believe that that the token needs to be not a point of friction and something that's usable and very easy to the consumer. Because you think of like platforms like Uber, which connect immediately with Apple Pay, it's super easy to use. You don't even have to input your credit card. Stuff that that makes the world better while also making stuff easier to use. I guess what, what's curious about that to me, or what I, what I would be interested to hear you talk about, is how optimistic you are that there will be solutions to some of these you know, frictions experienced in acquiring tokens and trying to use these platforms today you know, versus a year from now, two years from now, when these platforms are likely to you know, be able to scale anyways. I guess, to what degree is your investment thesis sort of taking it as an assumption that some of these problems uh, in 2018, early 2019, they're just going to get solved? I guess, what, what do you mean in the sense that, that cryptocurrency or blockchain solutions are going to solve them, or that something else is going to come and solve them? Let's take just the issue of a platform that you know requires you to use a token that in the current environment there are several steps towards loading this token onto the platform, you know, in your wallet. It seems like if you're sort of dismissing projects where that's necessary, you're basically saying that you think it's unlikely that in the near future, there'll be a third party solution that facilitates use of this platform and eliminates, you know, that pain point to consumers where when they're trying to use this platform, they have to go through several complicated steps just to get started. Yeah, I mean, things I've been suggesting to companies, like like one that I saw that was building communities recently, is that, that I think it'd be very valuable to, to sort of recreate a MetaMask within the platform you're using that would be able to onboard directly via fiat. And in terms of like answering your core question, so Awesome is, is a long-term focused fund. I mean, the, the fund life is seven years, so... So we're really focusing on technologies that we believe will scale within that time. And, and I honestly don't believe that, that that many people will adopt mainstream cryptocurrencies in order for it to be reasonable to, to have to transfer, uh, like, say, Ethereum into some native token and then, then onto the platform. I think it's much more so going to be that uh, a, per- a person... Let's say you purchase a TV, and uh, with that TV, you get $100 worth of tokens that you use to watch different shows. Something of that sort where it's a prepackaged solution that makes it easier. Or in terms of enterprise solutions, it's much more reasonable to ask them to go out and purchase a token. As like an enterprise can purchase a huge supply of a token. And, and if it's stable or if it's not, they have the token to use. And, and many companies are pinning the value of the token to X amount of service. So it's not as much of a risk to them. You would rather see consumer-facing platforms invest in their early stages in making the onboarding process as simple as possible rather than count on 
some sort of third-party platform uh, solving that for them in the near future? Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, are there projects that you're working with that you feel have you know, come up with elegant solutions to this problem that other projects should consider? Honestly, nothing that I, I feel is like the ultimate solution. Each project does does the does it a little differently, but nothing nothing I would say overarching that that I find to be like the best solution. It's really just fiat on ramps that I that I see is solving this. Kind of in that vein, are there what are your views on stable coins, and are there any particular stable coins that you're excited about? Yeah, in regards to stable coins, I think. I mean that's that's the main problem with cryptocurrencies right now. It's the volatility. So stable coins are great in that sense that they solve certain things. Um, it's it's really I, I feel like many stable coins are doing the same thing. You look at like USDC versus Tether or versus like True USD. They're all pinning to the dollar. What I'm very interested about is ones that are that are looking beyond that. So you look at something like Basis, which is one of our portfolio companies that. They're, they're marketing themselves as pinning to the dollar initially and then moving on to a consumer price index. The idea that you have a stable coin that's more stable than the U.S. dollar, that's something very interesting to me. I'm really excited to see how that ends up panning out. Because I guess if, you, if you're able to pin a coin to a certain value of physical items, that makes it more so protected from inflation than any, any global currency out there today. So, so are you more optimistic about, let's say, like a gold-backed or some type of physical asset-backed stablecoin that is used as collateral versus any type of fiat currency, even if the, the stablecoin itself is priced relative to like USD or the pound or the yen? I would say in terms of like if it I like things that are pinned to many items. Uh, I've seen many stable coins that are pinned to gold or to platinum or to some metals, uh, some of which are actually redeemable for the metal they'll send you in the mail, which is pretty pretty interesting, I'd say. but I, I, I think the the best way to stabilize things is through an index of items. So whether that be an index of of major currencies and major major commodities, I, I think that's the ultimate solution because if you pin something to one thing specifically, it's much more likely to fluctuate than if you pin it to many known stable things. That's uh, I've seen a project called uh, Standard One, which was pretty interesting in the sense that it was creating a stable coin that was an index of all existing stable coins. That's not something I'm particularly fond of, but it's getting a- across the right idea. So you mentioned that you feel that volatility is the biggest problem with blockchain right now, or maybe blockchain is not the right word, but you see volatility as a very big problem. I'm just wondering if you could elaborate on that. Cause I do think that's a broad thing in the community that I sort of agree with in some circumstances and sort of dis- disagree with in other circumstances. And I would be curious to hear your opinion. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's the, the largest, I think it's a, a, a huge concern in terms of, of cryptocurrency trading and all that. But I mean, the core issues I see in blockchain itself are, are really scalability. But to answer your question, and so like, I see the reason why people aren't, many people aren't purchasing Bitcoin today is because it's because of the fear that, oh, I purchased Bitcoin at 6,000 today and it's going to be worth 3,000 tomorrow. It's, it's, it's the unknown, which is, is if you can purchase a cryptocurrency and not have that fear associated with it and like trust it and have confidence in it, I think much more people would be aligned to purchase crypto then. But at the same time, what are their incentives to do so? I guess if, if something is known to be stable, then, then why, why purchase it instead of just holding the dollar? You know? mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting that you say, or you frame it like that, because I think you're probably right. And people's sort of fear of loss is a huge barrier to them potentially holding something like Bitcoin. They see it as much riskier than other assets they might invest in, which is, you know, perhaps true. But what's interesting about that perspective is that I think if and when you see some of that volatility, you know, in the dollar in a way that maybe we haven't seen in the past few decades, you wonder if that'll be the event that 
sort of drives people towards crypto in a way that hasn't happened to this point. They're feeling like there is not necessarily a safe, low volatility haven for their savings. Yeah, I think that's going to be very interesting to the point that, I mean, cryptocurrencies, I feel like in essence, from a financial perspective, were created to replace the current banking system. Because you see that like when you, when you get like a 30 year mortgage, the amount of interest you're, pl- you're paying to me seems absurd that you would be paying that much in order to borrow oh, X amount of dollars. And I think there are many points where the current financial system could collapse. Specifically, uh, many people are predicting that there's going to be a student loan bubble soon. I think uh, in in the next financial recession, where we'll see many, like the dollar and traditional currencies and traditional financial institutions struggle, we'll see the ver- the value of cryptocurrencies, blockchain, and smart contracts, where things are trusted by decentralized entities and where or computer algorithms are running things more so than people. And I think, I mean, it's just a matter of time before that opportunity presents itself. But once it does, then I'm hoping that there'll be a large shift into using cryptocurrencies as the main means of transacting. If this were to happen, let's say in six months, would you view cryptocurrencies specifically kind of like store of value, fungible assets like Bitcoin what do you think would happen to them if this were to happen in six months versus if it were to happen in two years? That's that's a really good question. I mean, in six months, it's like the next 18 months will be very interesting because a lot of the large projects that raise hundreds of millions at their ICOs will be beginning to list in the next 18 months or so. So it's going to be a very interesting time for cryptocurrencies in general. But if, if that were to happen in the next six months, I, I could see the value of Bitcoin increasing heavily, but at the same time, I mean, no one knows with these things. It could, it could follow the state of the economy, but I highly doubt it since it is a global currency. And if this were to happen, let's say two years from now, I feel that we'll be in a much better position for it to happen in the sense that the technologies we've been waiting for, like Ethereum moving to proof of stake and sharding and core developments like that, like Filecoin launching will be will come to fruition at that point. And then we'll be in a much more stable place for cryptocurrencies to blow up at that point. And I mean, that, that comes to the, the main question of when is the next, uh, the next rise in, in the price of cryptocurrencies going to come, which I really am interested to hear your perspectives on that. Yeah, I think like like uh, you and Awesome were much more long-term investors than short-term investors, and I feel a lot better about my abilities to predict things over a five to ten year time horizon that's less dependent on kind of like short-term market trends and psychology, and more on like having conviction around how blockchain technology is you know changing the world and will continue to do so. So I think in the in the short term, from the information that I have available and from the conversations I have and what I learn, for the last few months, I keep seeing and reading all these bull signals, but the price is staying sideways. Uh, and as you know, Oris, uh, the vast majority of volume for most crypto assets, but especially like Bitcoin, is not on exchanges. It's on OTC markets. So unless one has access to kind of what's going on there, if you know, you're a market maker, you work in OTC trading desk, it's re- really hard to have kind of the full picture around like why the price is staying what it is. There's significant amount of wash trading and other types of market manipulation. So my, I felt for a few months that I would guess the price of Bitcoin and the entire crypto asset marketplace should be increasing based on, you know, news and trends and more blockchain jobs and, Kind of all, all these things that should, I think, correlate with a price increase, but we don't see that correlation in the market. And I think that's just because, you know, the, the fundamental analysis that I'm used to doing operates on a longer time horizon and, you know, market psychology and manipulation can kind of just store, you know, the intrinsic value and price discovery for even potentially years. Yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting perspective, but what I, what I think is that right now, many cryptocurrencies are still overvalued in, in some respects. I mean, take Ethereum, for example. It's, it's worth over $21 billion right now. And in reality, the technology is, up, is not up to par of a company worth $21 billion. They're still figuring out what they want to do. And so many people in the market are putting pressure, oh, why isn't Ethereum releasing this? Why aren't they doing that? They're worth so much money. Why aren't they doing so many things? But 
it's they can't. It's like a new technology. You can't really rush that type of development. And I think, in some respects, it is overvalued. But also in others, there's I think there's still a lot a much higher point to go to, which is when the adoptability will occur. Another thing I'd want to point out is that many people look at coin market cap to see how much how how much these cryptocurrencies are valued. But like you said, many transactions occur over the counter, which are not on the books per se. And another thing to account for is that coin market cap really only accounts for the circulating supply, rather than the total supply of all the currencies available. So it really does not give a comprehensive perspective of the market today. And I mean, in terms of the, the span of this bear market, I think it's 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 a great time that pe- so many people are building, that all these new jobs are forming, and it's it's really a matter of time before it picks up. And I think that will come probably from the regulatory regulatory environment recognizing the the value of blockchain and cryptocurrencies, which will stem from like an ETF and the onset of more STOs and things like that. I'm curious, since I've seen uh, a lot of discussion about the number of jobs being added and price stagnation, it doesn't strike me that the continued adding of jobs to crypto, that seems like more of a lagging indicator. And it just seems more like a reflection of where crypto crypto was at its peak, where ICOs or how they were performing this time last year. Was it two years ago at this point? I I can't remember. (laughs) It's been a long year. I guess it was just a year ago, yeah. So to what degree do you feel like, you know, these sorts of metrics are predictive of future success? I mean, I obviously feel that success is coming in the future, but I don't think that's necessarily the reason why. And I'm curious why so many people do feel that way. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. Like looking at the amount of jobs coming in, if you think about that, that that's because cryptocurrencies are the fastest appreciating asset class in history. So you see so many people come on with so much wealth so quickly that they're thinking, oh, what can I do with this? And now they have all this money to create the projects they want to do. So you look at things like consensus, which honestly is not really profitable just yet, but they're employing hundreds of people all off uh, Joe Lubin's personal wealth. So, I mean, it's really not a good indicator in that sense, but I think the amount of development that's happening is a strong indicator as well as companies coming in, such as IBM, Hyperledger, working with different companies. And I've seen many major companies partner with cryptocurrency companies because they feel like they're going to miss out if they don't. But at the same time, it's, it's important to assess if the technologies they're actually building are necessary or are they just a redundant form to use the, the hype that is blockchain now. Yeah, I see those partnerships as the biggest bull indicators and the, the adoption by... Certain high-profile investors like Yale's endowment comes to mind more so than just like an increase in the number of crypto jobs. Yeah, I would I would see like an increase in the number of GitHub commits, which is going to correlate, you know, with an increased number of jobs as being more of a positive signal. So I think like the absence of this thing would be a bear signal. But in terms of the timing, I think it's more a reflection of where the markets were a year ago than the fact that there's something on the immediate horizon that's going to, you know, we're going to break through. Let's pivot a bit. I think there was some, or Zach and I wanted to discuss privacy tokens. Yeah, let's start with generally privacy. And then I want to also specifically discuss Mimblewimble and Beam and Grin. Oris and I have had a couple conversations about this, but haven't really gotten into it yet. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, I guess, where do we start? Like, it's uh, ring signatures or... I mean, anywhere, really. <laughs> yeah, what are, what are your views on Monero, re, ring signatures, zero knowledge proofs? And then also, what? well, I guess maybe, maybe a better place to start is, what privacy tokens is Awesome holding, and are you holding any additional privacy tokens besides that? And kind of why are you excited about these? I can't really disclose what Awesome is holding at the moment, but uh, I'd love to talk about, like, personally, I'm holding Zcash and Monero at the moment. I think those are are two of the most prominent. Although I think that uh, ring signatures is a little dated, honestly, in, in terms of pr- uh, privacy perspective. 
And the, the concept of zero-knowledge proofs is very interesting, but in order to implement it properly to be totally immutable, I think is, is a challenge. And that's, that's what excites me about Mimblewimble, which I see as potentially the solution to, to all sorts of privacy. There are some people who, I guess, feel that there's degrees of privacy. And that's always struck me as a strange way to view the problem. It's always been more intuitive to me to think that at its core, something is either private or it's not. And what's important is that sort of binary checkmark of, is this a private currency or not, is checked to yes. So add some, add some nuance to that for me, if you, if you don't mind. <laughs> uh, in what sense? Like, is, is how private is, are these transactions? Do you, or? do you see value to sort of increasing the level of privacy? Or do you think fundamentally something either just needs to be private or not. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not asking this question. Well, I think, I think I understand what you're saying. And I think there are degrees of privacy in terms of, of how deep you can go into a block explorer to find different things. And I see that things that you like Mimblewimble, which is, which is using coin join and confidential transactions that's a much higher level of privacy. But I think the, the ultimate level of privacy, which I don't know if it's really achievable, would be to not have any information on a block explorer whatsoever. But, um, I mean, that's, that's very theoretical, and it's, it's not an easy challenge to solve. Right, and I ask because the sorts of priorities that should be weighed in this sort of project... In, in a privacy token are different depending on how you view privacy in the first place. And so I think when you're viewing privacy as more of a spectrum, which when I've spoken to, you know, the smartest people on this subject that I've had a chance to, it does seem like in the current environment, viewing privacy as a spectrum is the correct approach. And therefore, I think weighing the merits of these tokens primarily based on how private they are is prudent. Once you're at a point where you can view privacy as more of a checkmark, where, yes, these various projects X, Y, and Z are private. No one is going to be able to you know, identify the transactions you've made on this network. Then the sorts of things that become a competitive advantage are different. Scalability might be one. Transaction costs might be one. Speed of transactions is another. You know, those are both sort of functions of scalability. Anyways, what we like about the Mimblewimble implementation is its advantage in areas like scalability. And it seems privacy might be an advantage in the short term. But in the long term, I, I would like to know better to what degree that advantage in terms of privacy is maintainable. And I don't know if this is necessarily the best time or place to get those answers, or if anyone has them. I guess, are you asking more, more so on what is the potential use cases of absolute privacy? Or? No, I'm, what I'm asking is, to what degree is total privacy achievable? And to what degree have these various projects, or how close are these various projects? Yeah, I mean, I think total privacy is probably not completely achievable, not with, what, with the technologies we have developed currently. I think these projects have, have made steps in the right directions. That's, I think Mimblewimble is, is the best uh, showcase of how far it has come so far. In the sense that, I mean, if, I'm sure as you guys know that, that Mimblewimble, I guess, joins the transactions together. So if you look at a block explorer, you really just see one large transaction. And the idea that you do not know who is participating within that, I think, is, is a very high level of security but I still don't believe that is the greatest level of security possible. Because right. I guess the, the, the downfalls of Mimblewimble, from what I've read, is that you can have sort of spy nodes, nodes in which they're tracking the behavior of what's actually occurring on them and discover what's, what the true nature of the transactions are. And you could have that on any... But uh, you, you could analyze like the publicly available blockchains of Monero and, and Zcash and probably have a greater success rate than these kind of spy nodes. But yeah, I, I hear your point that it's still not. 
it's not perfect privacy. And I think Mimblewimble represents a huge kind of increase in privacy relative to any other solutions I'm aware of. Uh, and also the, the scalability of it is really exciting. But, you know, it's, it's still pretty early on in the development of networks and crypto assets. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if something completely blows Mimblewimble out of, out of the water in the future. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, there's always people working on new types of privacy protocols. And I mean, who knows? Mimblewimble was just dropped into a Bitcoin forum chat. Who knows what will be placed there next? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I do still think it's worth investigating, like, to what degree is partial privacy valuable? Because if you could imagine someone coming up with some sort of formal mathematical proof for why total privacy is impossible using blockchain. I'm not sure if that's likely or possible, but it seems conceivable. And so at that point, it becomes a question of, you know, what's the value of various gradations of privacy? Since it seems like the main economic value of privacy would be hiding things from some sort of violent state that can seize your assets. And if a determined state could find and track your assets, then... Even if it's difficult, it's still questionable, like, how much value is there? Yeah. I mean, that's what I feel like we saw with the original use cases of Bitcoin, where the the founders of the Silk Road ended up having to give up their Bitcoin, and it was sold at auction to, to Tim Draper, actually, I'm pretty sure. But um, it's the idea that with Bitcoin, what was thought to be a private currency that could not be in the control of central authorities became able to be controlled by the central authorities by access to their wallet addresses. And I think what privacy coins are doing is they're they're trying to eliminate that hurdle once more. But then again, and this was only several years after Bitcoin came out, that they were already able to to track down the wallets and sort of freeze these funds and, and take them from, from individuals. And I think that it's just a matter of time before they're able to do so with, with the current privacy protocols, unless we find better solutions. And that, that solution might be Mimblewimble, or it might be Zcash or zero-knowledge proofs. I mean, I don't think we know what that is yet. It's just a matter of time before someone's able to, to break the cryptography associated with them. So in terms of what's interesting about Mimblewimble, aside from the potential improvements in privacy is that there's these two sort of initial projects implementing it and they're taking different approaches. And I'm just curious to get your input on which of these you see as a better, you know, solution in the current environment. And I'll, I'll give the breakdown for the listeners. Basically there is a sort of traditional project beam that is, you know, has raised money in an initial presale and is going to be doing an ICO, I believe. And they have a team that is, you know, sort of centrally developing the Beam token, which is an implementation of Mimblewimble. Now, obviously, the actual token will be decentralized. It's just being created by, you know, a for-profit entity, essentially. The other project is Grin, which is being done open source by a group of developers that is explicitly very reluctant to accept any sort of investment and they're just going to be doing a traditional mine and i guess wherever they can list the token it'll become available at that point to be purchased from miners do you see one of these is you know innately more investable at the moment or do you think one sort of approach is just better than the other in the current environment yeah, I mean, that's that's a tough question to answer. I think it's really a battle of, of do you like the sort of central nature of a company or do you like the more decentralized, everyone works on on it on their own type deal. And it's, it's really, I feel like there's either one could work out. I think that Beam is, is for the most part, more organized in the sense of development-wise. But uh, I'm excited about Grin since they... Um, they're launching their currency in in the same essence that Bitcoin was created, in, in a way that it's 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 really a group of people with a common purpose 
developing something out of out of their own interest rather than a, mon- a direct monetary gain. And to, to answer which one will be better in the end, I think we don't really know yet, in the sense that not really much information has been released on either to make a, a concrete decision on them. I, I think Grin is uh, quite a bit more secretive than Beam, but honestly, we as we've seen with zero-knowledge proofs, I think there'll be several cur- uh, privacy coins that adopt Mimblewimble and that do succeed, and I think both Grin and Beam have a high likelihood, although I'm I'm more inclined towards Beam just because I like the the sort of like uh, more true to crypto launch that they're doing that's akin to Bitcoin. You mean you mean Grin? Yes, yeah. Did I say Beam? Yeah. Okay, my bad. And I, I know you guys like are pretty heavy on Beam, so I mean I'm, I'm, I'd love to hear your guys' perspective on this as well. Well, I mean we're we like both projects. Right now, there's no way to invest in Grin. Yeah, that was one of the first things we looked into when kind of presented with the Beam opportunity of like what other implementations are out there and is that possible to invest? And But I also think we, as a fund, you know, we have a thesis around centralized projects at the beginning being a, a much more effective go-to-market strategy than starting completely decentralized. I think for something like money, like with Beam, I think like the way Bitcoin was started in a kind of a completely full decentralized Nature by consensus, I think there's a lot more merit to that for something like money, but especially for other ty- other projects, uh, it's really difficult to make the types of decisions and work at the speed one needs to 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 make enough progress to get something off the ground. So I think as long as you know the the incentives uh, for the founding team to go decentralized and the the intent from them to do that is there. I think often, if presented with kind of these two different options and we had to pick one, we would go with kind of the centralized start. But the beauty of, you know, investing in the kind of most promising entrepreneurs and assets that are changing the world is you don't have to just pick one. And I, I think it's it's fairly likely we're going to take other Mimblewimble implementation positions as as the space grows and as Grin becomes live. Just the fact that Beam is very likely to be first to market even though I think Grin had a significant head start in terms of development, that in itself shows, you know, some of the power of being a more profit motivated or profit motivated and centralized entity, uh, at least in certain stages. And if you can find a way to balance, you know, that those incentive structures with creating a truly decentralized product, I think it's a recipe for success. That being said, I think hedges will be made. That's that's uh, the hardest part about investing in crypto that you don't really know what's going to happen, especially like stuff like Grin that's taking longer to launch. You don't know if if they're working on on larger things than Beam or what's what's the reality of happening that's that's happening on on the inside. I mean, then again, the the idea of investing in a centralized entity like a company like Beam. I mean, that's that that's all the investments that Awesome has made as a crypto fund. So it's it's. It's, I think, a very challenging question, and we'll just have to wait to see how it pans out. And on that note, Orist, thank you for coming on the podcast and taking the time today. Uh, we really appreciate it, and I know for one, I had a really good time discussing these topics with you and, and looking forward to uh, speaking more in the future. Yeah, me as well. Thank you guys so much for having me.